Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, hub of the universe. This is episode 145, Boston's Dark Days and Eclipses. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be sharing clips from two classic Hub History episodes inspired by recent headlines. The brilliant sunsets and dramatic TV weather reports inspired by smoke drifting into our area from Canadian wildfires last month got me thinking. There have been at least three smoke events in Boston history that caused darkness in the middle of the day and made people wonder if the end of the world was coming. They happened in 1780, in 1881, and in 1950. I'll replay an episode from last summer about these dark days. Of course, the people who lived through those dark days compared them to solar eclipses. I'll also be sharing a segment from the summer of 2017 that explores the solar eclipses that early Boston witnessed, from soon after European colonization to the turn of the 19th century. But before we talk about Boston's dark days and solar eclipses, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a satirical map of Boston which was created by Daniel Wallingford and published in the 1930s. It's titled, A Bostonian's Idea of the United States of America. And if you've ever seen the famous New Yorker cover presenting A View of the United States from Ninth Avenue, you're familiar with the genre. It pokes a bit of gentle fun at our provincialism and our self-regard. On this map of the United States, New England is as big as the rest of the country combined. The distance from Boston to Provincetown is represented as roughly equal to the distance from Boston to St. Louis. An inset map of Boston and the wider New England area are rendered in faithful detail, while the rest of the country suffers from a hilarious level of carelessness. Washington, D.C. is portrayed as being basically right next to Pittsburgh, which is in turn right next to Wyoming. Out on the West Coast, Omaha and Denver are sandwiched right between Portland and San Francisco. Of course, since it purports to convey the Boston mindset, the whole thing is topped off by a representation of a codfish. There's a disclaimer warning readers not to use the map for navigation, astronomy, or meteorology. And then a note discusses what it means to be a Bostonian. A person born in the city of Boston and residing in Boston may not be a Bostonian. Yet a person born in Hingham, residing in Newton, dilatory domicile Magnolia, with frequent crossings to England and the continent, is likely to be a Bostonian. The lack of a definite textbook definition for a Bostonian has added to the many difficulties encountered by the publishers of this map. The ideas held by many Bostonians concerning the United States have been gathered, evaluated, weighted, and combined. This map, a composite of these ideas, is the result. In this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 145, we'll have a link to see an online copy of the map in the BPL's Leventhal Map Collection. You can zoom in to see all the notes and quirks in glorious detail. We'll also include a link to a 2011 article from the map-obsessed blog Bostonography that I first learned about the Wallingford map from. And for my upcoming event this week, I'm featuring Phyllis Wheatley Day at Old South Meeting House. In 1761, slave traders kidnapped a young girl who was about seven years old from West Africa, perhaps from today's Gambia or Senegal. She was put on the ship Phyllis and brought to Boston, where she was purchased and enslaved by a man named John Wheatley for his wife Susanna. The girl was named Phyllis Wheatley after the ship that carried her and the family that enslaved her. The Wheatley family soon recognized Phyllis's towering intellect and provided her with an education that few enslaved people, even in enlightened New England, 
could have hoped for. She learned to read and write English quickly, then took up Latin and Greek, and soon read the classics in their original forms. She began writing poetry, and researchers have turned up evidence that she was published as early as 1767. Today, she's remembered as the first African-American to publish a volume of verse, and the first woman to do so in America. The book would come later, in 1773, and still later she would be manumitted. However, a decade after her arrival in Boston, when she was gaining fame and respect as a poet but was still enslaved, Phyllis Wheatley became a full member of Old South Church on August 18, 1771. Now the state celebrated, if celebrated is the right word, as Phyllis Wheatley Day at Old South Meeting House. The event's free with museum admission, and it'll go from 9.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Sunday, August 18th. Stop by to meet a costumed reenactor portraying Phyllis Wheatley and learn more about her remarkable life. Before we get started with the show, I'd like to take a brief moment to thank everyone who supports us on Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, you can help us offset the costs of making and improving Hub History. One goal I have in the coming months is moving our show to another podcast host. Our current host hasn't made changes to support the newest features in Apple Podcasts, and they don't integrate directly with Spotify, which is quickly becoming one of the top podcast apps. Of course, an upgrade like that will mean a more expensive hosting plan, but you can help. If you're not already supporting the show, please check out patreon.com slash hubhistory, or go to hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. There, you'll see the rewards available for our Amelia Earhart, Lewis Hayden, and Abigail Adams supporters. For those who are thinking about supporting the show, and especially to those who already do, thank you. We couldn't make Hub History without you. And now it's time for this week's main topic. We were inspired to release this episode by the brilliant red sunsets and slightly worrisome weather forecasts in Boston during the week after the July 4th holiday this year. For example, here's what WCVB said on July 10th. You may notice a little bit of haze in the sky today, and it actually has to do with some fires that are burning in Canada. These wildfires have been bringing plumes of stoke to the jet stream here across parts of northern New England the past couple of days. And some of that smoke may be more directed here into southern New England as we go through the day. So if you notice a little bit of haze in the sky, that is why they're all. That put me in mind of three incidents across three centuries when daytime turned to darkness in the skies over Boston. It may sound like I'm talking about solar eclipses, but they were actually smoke events in 1780, 1881, and 1950. Each time, people were confused and frightened. And each time, there was speculation that the end of the world was at hand. This segment originally aired in June of 2018 as episode 85. Writing from her home in Braintree, Our old friend Abigail Adams describes a phenomenon that would come to be known as the Dark Day of 1780 in a letter to James Lovell. We have had a strange phenomena in the natural world. On Friday, the 19th of May, the sun rose with a thick, smoky atmosphere indicating dry weather, which we had for 10 days before. Soon after 8 o'clock in the morning, the sun shut in and it rained half an hour. After that, there arose light, luminous clouds from the north and west, the wind at southwest. They gradually spread over the hemisphere till such a darkness took place as appears in a total eclipse. By 11 o'clock, candles were lit up in every house. The cattle retired to the barns, the fowls to the roost, and the frogs croaked. 
The greatest darkness was about one o'clock. It was three before the sky assumed its usual look. The luminous clouds disappeared, and it rained gently for an hour or two. About eight o'clock in the evening, almost instantaneously, the heavens were covered with Egyptian darkness. Objects the nearest to you could not be discerned, though the moon was at her full. It continued till twelve at night and then disappeared without either wind or rain. The clouds passed to the south and east. I have given you only my own observations. I hope some of our philosophical geniuses will endeavor to investigate so unusual an appearance. It is a matter of great consternation to many. It was the most solemn appearance my eyes ever beheld, but the philosophical eye can look through and trust to the ruler of the sky. An anonymous poet set the events in verse, saying, in part, Nineteenth of May, a gloomy day, when darkness veiled the sky. The sun's decline may be a sign, some great event is nigh. Let us remark how black and dark was the ensuing night. And for a time, the moon declined and did not give her light. A letter in Boston's Continental Journal from someone writing under the name Viator adds a detailed account of the darkest part of the day. About eleven o'clock, the darkness was such as to demand our attention and put us upon making observations. At half past eleven, in a room with three windows, twenty-four panes each, all open towards the southeast and south, large print could not be read by persons of good eyes. About twelve o'clock, the windows being still open, a candle cast a shade so well defined on the wall as that profiles were taken with as much ease as they could have been in the night. About one o'clock, a glint of light which had continued till this time in the east shut in, and the darkness was greater than it had been for any time before. Between one and two o'clock, the wind from the west freshened a little, and glint appeared in that quarter. We dined about two, the windows all open, and two candles burning on the table. In the time of the greatest darkness, some of the dunghill fowls went to their roost. Cocks crowed in answer to one another as they commonly do in the night. Woodcocks, which are night birds, whistled as they do only in the dark. Frogs peeped. In short, there was the appearance of midnight at noonday. About three o'clock, the light in the west increased. The motion of the clouds more quick. Their color higher and more brassy than any time before. There appeared to be quick flashes or coruscations, not unlike the aurora borealis. Abigail Adams, hilariously named Uncle Cotton Tufts, noted the reaction of the less enlightened residents of the area. The vulgar considered it some as pretending great calamities, others as a prelude to the general dissolution of all things. Writing over a hundred years later, historian Sidney Purley also colored his version of the events with an apocalyptic tint, saying, The light of the sun seemed to be almost taken away from the earth, and a strange darkness filled the hours that should have been brightest, bringing fear, anxiety, and awe into the minds of the people who generally believed that it was the darkening of the sun and moon preparatory to the day of the consummation of all things some perhaps expecting the appearance in the clouds of the Son of Man. It was undoubtedly equal to the darkness that overspread Judea during the hours that our Savior was dying upon the cross. In Boston, one of Reverend Dr. Biles' parishioners sent her servant to him when the darkness was grossest, asking whether or not, in his opinion, 
it did not pretend an earthquake, hurricane, or some other elementary commotion. Give my respectful compliments to your mistress, facetiously replied the doctor, and tell her I am as much in the dark as she is. People knew of the prophecy of the darkening of the sun and moon, and ignorant and learned alike were not certain that this was not at least a token of the dreadful day of universal destruction. Melancholy and awe filled most minds, many thinking that the sun of mercy had set, and that the night of despair, of judgment, and the end of all things was at hand. People gazed upon each other in wonder and astonishment. It was popularly believed that the Revolutionary War, which for more than five years had been waged, was the fulfillment of that other prophecy that announces wars and rumors of wars as coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. A sort of superstitious horror brooded over all the people. It influenced the minds of all classes, of the strong and learned, as well as the weak and ignorant. Though Pearlie may have overstated things somewhat, there certainly were folks in New England who believed the end was at hand. An 1839 article in Hayward's New England Gazetteer recalls the reaction of Senator Abraham Davenport when the skies began to grow dark in Hartford. The 19th of May, 1780, was a remarkable dark day. Candles were lighted in many houses, the birds were silent and disappeared, and the fowls retired to roost. The legislature of Connecticut was then in session in Hartford. A very general opinion prevailed that the Day of Judgment was at hand. The House of Representatives, being unable to transact their business, adjourned. A proposal to adjourn the council was under consideration. When the opinion of Mr. Davenport was asked, he answered, I am against an adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. Davenport was truly living up to the message of that old bumper sticker, Jesus is coming, look busy. Hundreds of miles away in New Jersey, where the effect wasn't as strong, George Washington recorded the event in his journal. Heavy and uncommon kind of clouds, dark and at the same time a bright and reddish kind of light intermixed with them, brightening and darkening alternately. This continued till afternoon when the sun began to appear. Further evidence that Sidney Purley did not give nearly enough credit to the people of the 18th century, especially the strong and learned people, comes from Samuel Williams. He was the A.M. Hollis Professor of Mathematics and Philosophy at Harvard, and he tried to give an exhaustive and objective description of the event. The time of this extraordinary darkness was May 19, 1780. It came on between the hours of 10 and 11 a.m. and continued until the middle of the next night, but with different appearances at different places. As to the manner of its approach, it seemed to appear first of all in the southwest. The wind came from that quarter, and the darkness appeared to come on with the clouds that came in that direction. The degree to which the darkness arose was different in different places. In most parts of the country, it was so great that people were unable to read common print, determine the time of day by their clocks or watches, dine, or manage their domestic business without the light of candles. In some places, the darkness was so great that persons could not see to read common print in the open air for several hours together but I believe this was not generally the case. 
The extent of this darkness was very remarkable. Our intelligence in this respect is not so particular as I would wish, but from the accounts that have been received, it seems to have extended all over the New England states. It was observed as far east as Falmouth, and at that time Falmouth referred to the city we know as Portland, Maine. To the westward we hear of it reaching to the furthest parts of Connecticut and Albany. To the southward it was observed all along the seacoasts, and to the north as far as our settlements extend. It is probable it extended much beyond these limits in some directions, but the exact boundaries cannot be ascertained by any observations that I've been able to collect. With regard to its duration, it continued in this place at least 14 hours, but it is probable this was not exactly the same in different parts of the country. The appearance and effects were such as tended to make the prospect extremely dull and gloomy. Candles were lighted up in the houses. The birds, having sung their evening songs, disappeared and became silent. The fowls retired to roost. The cocks were crowing all around as at break of day. Objects could not be distinguished but at very little distance, and everything bore the appearance and gloom of night. Being a scientifically-minded professor, Williams also took lots of measurements of temperature and barometric pressure, observing that they were experiencing what we would call a high-pressure system, and that the temperature was slightly lower than normal. He noted reports that there was a broad strip of black scum left behind on the banks of rivers in the seashore after the dark day. There were scattered showers throughout the area, and Williams quotes a resident of Ipswich as saying, He found the people much surprised with the strange appearance and smell of rainwater, which they had saved in tubs. Upon examining the water, I found, says he, a light scum over it, which, rubbing between my thumb and finger, I found to be nothing but the black ashes of burnt leaves. The water gave the same strong sooty smell which we had observed in the air. Williams confirmed that he also thought the residue on the waters was black ashes of burnt leaves without any sulfurous or other mixtures. Continuing his observations, he recounted, I put out several sheets of clean paper in the air and rain. When they had been out four or five hours, I dried them by the fire. They were much soiled and became dark in their color and felt as if they had been rubbed with oil or grease. But upon burning them, there was not any appearance of sulfurous or nitrous particles. Now, what we have going on here is some poheck. That would be problem, observation, hypothesis, experiment, and conclusion. 1780 wasn't the first time that a dark day was recorded in Boston, and it wouldn't be the last. On October 21, 1716, a Sabbath day, a similar event was recorded, though it's not nearly so well documented as the one that occurred almost 64 years later. Several sources we found said that Cotton Mather was so intrigued by the dark day that he sent an account of it to the Royal Philosophical Society in London, but we haven't been able to track down a copy of the account itself. One of the only primary sources we could find was this diary entry from Stephen Jacques of Newbury, Mass. On the Sabbath day, about eleven o'clock in the sermon time, it grew so dark that one could not see a person from one end of the meeting-house to the other, except it was against a window, nor could know another four seats off, nor read a word in a psalm-book. It continued near half an hour. Some ministers sent for candles, 
Some sat still till it was lighter. Some was ready to think the world was at an end. All seemed to be concerned. It was a time when the air was very full of smoke. It came daily down when it was a southwest wind, and the wind being now, as I remember, at east, which might bring the smoke back and dark clouds pass over, as it being cloudy weather. I was an eyewitness of this myself. A 1912 U.S. Forest Service report about forest fires gives a list of dark days affecting New England that had entered the historical record up until that time. It includes dark days of varying intensity in Yesterday, Boston was shrouded, and nature's gloom, soon infusing itself into the hearts of all, made it a day long to be remembered, reminding one vividly of that famous dark day of years ago. About seven o'clock in the morning, the golden pall shrouded the city in its embrace, and the weird, unreal appearance continued throughout the day. As one approached a doorway from within and glanced out upon the sidewalk and street, it was difficult to dispel the illusion that an extensive conflagration was raging near, and that it was the yellow, gleaming light from the burning houses that produced the singular effect. Before long, darkness began to fall and lamps had to be lit, as Harper's Magazine relates. The singular light, which to many persons seemed to be brassy rather than golden, produced extraordinary effects. Although the air appeared to be unusually bright, the light was painful to the eyes and it was difficult to read or write without artificial light. One person, busily writing, found himself gradually moving out upon the piazza into the open air. His neighbor, reading by the open door, found his eyes tired, as if reading in the late twilight, and he abandoned his book. The village merchant nearby could not see to attend to his business, and at eleven o'clock in the morning lighted his lamps, which burned with a white spectral glare like the electric lights. Writing in forgotten New England, Ryan W. Owen continues the tale. By noon, the skies had darkened to the point that the birds were seen roosting, and people so accustomed to relying on natural light during their nineteenth-century days. Reached for artificial lights to light their offices and homes. Early afternoon trains left Boston with lamps lit, and the railroad men were seen leaving the depots with their lit lanterns in hand—a scene usually only seen on evening and night trains. People were already on edge because a great comet had dominated the skies from late May to late September. C slash eighteen eighty eight K one, as it's scientifically designated. Was first spotted from the southern hemisphere in May, then viewed from the northern hemisphere starting in mid-June. It was the first comet to be successfully photographed, and it's sometimes described as the brightest comet in recorded history. 
It was so bright that the long tail could be seen sweeping across the sky even in the middle of the day. Just a few weeks after the comet had passed out of view, the skies turned yellow. Was this some terrible side effect of passing through the comet's tail? Or was it something worse? A few people worried that the world might be ending, as they remembered the prophecy attributed to 16th century soothsayer Mother Shipton that said, The world to an end shall come in 1881. However, that prophecy had been invented for an 1862 book, and it wasn't something she ever said. However, that didn't stop people from worrying. Ryan W. Owen describes how Bostonians reacted as light receded from the world. So many Bostonians rushed to the Equitable Building to view the strange day from its high roof, that the roof had to be closed to further visitors in the afternoon. People sought explanations for what they were witnessing. The calmest theories blamed forest fires raging in Canada or Michigan, combining with fog and overcast skies in New England. Others attributed the yellowish hue to large amounts of pollen in the air from pine and fir trees. Many fretted about the skies, and more than a few feared that the Judgment Day was at hand. Some took this even further. Groups of Second Adventists in Worcester, Woonsocket, and Hartford were seen wearing their ascension robes to local schoolhouses, where they awaited the world's end. More than a few whispered that the Saffron Curtain was the sign of a divine judgment for the July 1881 shooting that had left President Garfield ailing in New Jersey. Harpers describes the, perhaps apocryphal, religious concern in one neighboring community. A rural deacon, pallid with terror, declared that he believed the end of the world to be at hand, but he was evidently overcome with fear. Why, Brother Jahil, said a neighbor, I suppose tis. But what then? You always said you wanted to be in heaven, and I guess you'll be there before dinner. You ought to be happy anyway. But it was evident that even Brother Jahil did not wish such happiness to be thrust upon him too suddenly. This time, the cause was quickly known. Observers again smelled smoke and saw the sooty residue left behind by the yellow air. Telegraph operators reached out across the country and soon heard news of the Great Thumb Fire. In faraway Michigan, in a corner of the map that looks like the thumb on a mitten, a forest fire was burning that would consume over a million acres of woodland before it burned itself out. Almost 300 people were killed, thousands of buildings were destroyed, and tens of thousands of people were left homeless. The Boston Globe describes the bizarre visual effects caused by the smoke-saturated atmosphere. From almost every store and dwelling, lights flashed and gleamed with the dazzling brightness and distinctive whiteness. Why gas should be thus affected is a question for the scientists to decide. By some, the opinion is held that the additional yellow rays in the atmosphere cut off those from the gas flame and thus give it additional clearness, while others assert that it is accounted for by some peculiarity of combustion in the charged atmosphere. The public garden seemed to have taken on an additional charm with its display of varying greens and vivid colorings. Far stranger freaks were played with the colors there than those in the pictures of the human family in a photographer's gallery. Flowers of pink turned pure white, and the serene blue of lobelia became a deep bronze, 
while flowers of yellow became pearly in their whiteness. The grass became a wonderful blue in many places, and the trees varied in their colors, from deep sea green to Prussian blue, while here and there, where the specks of autumn had tinged them with its hue, they stood out from their places grave, dark, and rusty. A description from Professor Williams of the colors visible on the 1780 dark day makes it appear that the dark day and the yellow day were merely different degrees of the same phenomenon. The color of objects that day was also worthy of remark. It is mentioned in the observations made by the gentleman here that the complexion of the clouds was compounded of a faint red, yellow, and brown, and that during the darkness, objects which commonly appear green were of the deepest green, verging to blue, and that those which appear white were highly tinged with yellow. Much the same observation was pretty generally made. Almost every object appeared to me tinged with yellow, rather than with any other color. This I found to be the case with everything I held up to view, whether near or remote from the eye. That 1912 Forest Service report that we'll go into more detail with in a few minutes makes the connection clear. Most dark days might more properly be called yellow days. Even Black Friday, May 19, 1780, which was the most memorable of all the dark days of modern times, was preceded by a gradually increasing yellowness and an odor. Unlike in 1881, after the 1780 dark day, people were left guessing what had happened. The Boston Gazette attempted a bit of CYA by saying, The printers acknowledge their incapacity of describing the phenomenon which appeared in this town on Friday last, and shall therefore leave it to astronomers whose more particular business it is. Cotton Tufts, Abigail Adams' uncle, recorded one possible explanation for the 1780 dark day. This uncommon darkness, greater in degree and longer in duration than it had ever been before, amongst us occasioned much speculation. Some attributed it to the influence of the planets, some to the effects of a comet, and some toward the eruption of a volcano. A close attention to what appeared before and during this event will help us to, at least, a probable solution of this matter, without having recourse to the planets, etc., for a cause. Prior to this, the woods from Ticonderoga for 30 miles downwards had been for some time on fire. No rain for many days, winds chiefly at west and northwest. By these, the smoke and vapors were carried to a great distance, insomuch that in our vicinity, the sky was at times obscured, the air crowded with smoke and vapors, a disagreeable smell like what proceeds from swamps on fire. Our Professor Williams got very close to the truth. And the cause from whence the uncommon quantity of these vapors was derived is easily ascertained. It is well known that in this part of America it is customary to make large fires in the woods for the purpose of clearing the lands in a new settlement. This was the case this spring in a much greater degree than is common. In the county of York in the western part of the state of New Hampshire, in the western parts of this state and in Vermont, Uncommonly large and extensive fires have been kept up. A large quantity of the vapors, thus collected in the atmosphere on the 19th of May, were floating near the surface of the earth. 
Wheresoever the specific gravity of any vapor is less than the specific gravity of the air, by the laws of fluids, such a vapor will ascend in the air. Where the specific gravity of a vapor in the atmosphere is greater than that of the air, such a vapor will descend. And where the specific gravity of the vapor and the air are the same, the vapor will then be at rest, floating or swimming in the atmosphere, without ascending or descending. Williams then references his barometrical readings to theorize that the specific gravity of the vapor on the 19th of May was greater than the surrounding air because the smoke particles in it made it more heavy, and that was why the day turned so dark. Williams was right about the general cause. It was, in fact, smoke from forest fires. But he had some of the details wrong. The mechanism that caused the smoke to concentrate, causing the 1780 dark day and the 1881 yellow day, wouldn't be fully explained until 1912. And the source of the smoke wouldn't be discovered until 2005, 225 years after Williams published his paper. In 1912, Henry S. Graves of the U.S. Forest Service published a report called Forest Fires, Their Causes, Extent, and Effects, with a summary of recorded destruction and losses. In it, there's a whole section on the smoke phenomena of forest fires, which delves into dark days and, by extension, yellow days. The tendency is for smoke to spread out and to be dissipated but if the volume is great, it may be identified for hundreds of miles, even when the cause of it is unknown. At greater distances, where the smoke is more attenuated, there is only a slight obscuration of light, though if the smoke has descended to the earth, it may interfere with vision. At still greater distances from the fire, when the smoke has been further mixed with clear air, its presence can only be noted by a yellow or pearly haze about the horizon, or by the discoloration of rain. These phenomena, observed from time immemorial, have been known by various names. In this country as dark days, dry fogs, Indian summers, and colored rains. Dark days have been recorded for centuries. Usually, there is a gradually increasing gloom until it becomes so dark that artificial light is necessary. This darkness may last a few hours or several days and decrease as gradually as it came. We are now able to show that dark days are due to dense smoke in the atmosphere, and that in this country, forest and prairie fires have been the causes. In other countries, peat fires and volcanic eruptions have also furnished smoke to produce dark days, but such cases are more rare. Theories advanced in olden times that dark days are caused by solar eclipses or by the transit of inferior planets across the solar disk are ridiculous. Since a total solar eclipse seldom lasts over five minutes, and a transit of Venus, the largest and nearest of the inferior planets, is barely visible to the naked eye, and would not cause a diminution of light or heat that would be measurable. If any consideration of such theories were necessary, it would be sufficient to point out that the dark days of modern history have not been coincident with either eclipses or transits. Graves then goes on to talk about the evidence that historic dark days were caused by fire, mostly by citing some of the same sources that we've already shared. Having demonstrated the cause, he then lays out an argument for why New England, and Boston in particular, have experienced more dark days than other areas of the continent. 
New England easily leads in the phenomena of very dark days, and several of the most pronounced have affected practically the same area. The tracks of many air currents and storm centers converge toward this area from all over the United States, and sometimes meet an opposing storm from the east or northeast. It therefore seems that dark days are caused by the banking up of smoke-laden air. The greatest forest fires have occurred in the northern states, and the winds, transporting the smoke eastward, flow over the New England states. At such a time, if a nor'easter flows in from the ocean and banks up a smoke-laden stratum, increasing its thickness and density, it is evident that obscurity and perhaps darkness will result. In the paper, Graves included a map of the northeastern United States, stretching from Michigan to Maine and from Kentucky to Delaware. Over the New England states, a series of concentric circles outlined the extent of the historically recorded dark days, from 1706 to 1910. If you've ever looked at a weather report during the middle of a classic nor'easter, you'll recognize the sweep of the jet stream down from Canada and the swirling pattern the map of New England's dark days traces with the bullseye directly over Boston. Pulling a quick description from Wikipedia, a nor'easter is a macro-scale cyclone. The name derives from the direction of the strongest winds that will be hitting an eastern seaboard of the northern hemisphere. As the cyclonic air mass rotates counterclockwise, winds tend to blow northeast to southwest, over the region covered by the northwest quadrant of the cyclone. They thrive on converging air masses, the cold polar air mass and the warmer air over the water, and are more severe in winter where the difference in temperature between these air masses is greater. If a fire happens particularly late in the season, or a nor'easter happens particularly early, the two can coincide. In that case, the smoke from the fire won't blow out over the ocean and dissipate. Instead, the smoke carried on the cold jet stream runs into the wet, heavy air circulating over the ocean like a car running into a tree. It keeps on piling up heavier and denser until the day turns dark. With modern fire control policies and techniques, Northern forests are less likely to be torn by fires that consume tens of thousands or even millions of acres. Less uncontrolled fires means fewer chances for dark days, but modern science allows us to see which fires of old led to the dark days we've discussed. A 2005 paper in the International Journal of Wildland Fire finally pinpointed the source of the 1780 smoke. By combing through the written records of the day and then overlaying that data with modern techniques for interpreting fire scar evidence, a group of experts believe they located the 1780 fire in the remote Algonquin Highlands in southern Ontario. In 1950, smoke from an even more remote source would cause another dark day in Boston, the last one we could find in the historical record. This time, we had the technology to know what was happening and where it came from, yet there were still people who refused to believe the science. Dark day truthers, if you will. It all started in a remote corner of Canada, as the Edmonton Journal recollects. The beginning of what some people thought was the end of the world started on June 2, 1950, with a small wildfire in the northeast corner of British Columbia. It had been an exceptionally hot spring, and forest fire managers were too busy with other fires in B.C., 
Alberta, and the southern Yukon, to do anything about a blaze that was remote and so far away from human settlement. The policy back then was to ignore fires that were 15 kilometers away from roads or human settlements. Within a few days, though, the fire crossed into Alberta's Chinchaga wildlands. Fueled by a tender dry forest that seemingly went on forever, the relatively small blaze developed into a wildfire of such monstrous proportions that the thickness of the smoke led some to believe that an atomic bomb had exploded and that the Western world was at war with Russia. The blaze burned for 222 days and torched a stretch of forest that was 245 kilometers long. It was, and still is, the biggest forest fire to hit Canada in modern times. It ended up burning 4.2 million acres of forest, with the worst of the damage occurring when a strong, steady wind blew from September 22nd to 24th. On the 24th and 25th, that cool, steady wind ran into the warm, wet breeze circling off the coast of New England. This time, Boston was on the northern edge of the affected area, becoming just dark enough to cause streetlights to come on during the daytime. The deepest darkness stretched from Virginia to New York. A resident of upstate New York wrote, It was not until noon that I first noticed the strange yellow light outside. It kept getting darker and darker. This strange hot tawny color at the zenith had the quality of a yellow August afterglow, yet different. By 2 p.m., it was almost like night. In the west, deep blue-black clouds... Then the sky went from Mars violet up to tawny orange. Lower clouds, white and cold. In the southeast, brilliant yellow light at the horizon. Another upstate New Yorker said, We noticed that the sky was becoming dark, but with a strange color, a yellowish or greenish or even orange-brown. Having been to Sunday school and church that morning, My brother and I wondered if the hellfire and brimstone preacher had been right about the impending end of the world. Mother and Daddy, being a bit more aware of the larger world and its escalating politics of the Cold War with the USSR, atom bomb tests, and so on, speculated it might have been some sort of horrible weapon or bomb test perpetrated by the Soviets. A small sample of the explanations for the dark day on one online message board gives one a glimpse into the fever dreams of a populace that is no longer tethered to the concept of scientific truth. No one had an answer for what caused the unusual day. They set a fire in Canada. The army was testing a new weapon. A spaceship had covered the sun, and it was the end of the world, and on and on. Very few people remember that day. I would really like to know what happened. We didn't have cell phones, computers, or much TV. We really were in the dark. Let me know what you know about this day. One thing, it wasn't the end of the world. My father always told us that the cloud was from a nuclear test in the Ural Mountains in the USSR gone wrong, and it was the debris from the Ural Mountains and not simply a forest fire. The forest fires at Fort McMurray do not act the same way as the one that Sunday in 1950. That same cloud went around the world before it finally dispersed. I found an interesting article that indicates the military was conducting bioterror exercises on September 20th, 1950 on the West Coast. Do you think it would have taken four days for that to reach us in the East? It would explain why the one woman who posted on your thread said that there was a high incidence of women having mentally retarded children during that time. Just a thought. 
I was born in 1971, and I just heard about Black Sunday today. So strange. I know. There are U.S. government Air Force theories about USAF using cloud seed cover weaponry in trials. And also, the approval of N-bomb trials given that year in January. There was no odor of smoke, and I don't recall any stars visible. It seemed to take a lot longer than two minutes for the darkness to return to daylight. The only explanation I ever heard was the forest fire story, which I never believed. My own thoughts are of a government experiment to try to hide the carbon plants from the area from the view of aircraft from above. Surprisingly, none of these commenters left evidence of their PhD credentials. And that, my friends, is where Pizzagate, climate denial, and the Trump presidency come from. Of course, now that we've described these smoke events that resembled solar eclipses in many ways, it's only fair that we tell you about Boston's history with real eclipses. Back in August of 2017, Nikki and I traveled to Nashville to view the eclipse. While we were gone, we aired episode 42, a brief show about Boston's experience with partial and total solar eclipses in history. We started with a partial eclipse in 1659, not long after European colonization, and wound up with the total eclipse of 1806, which was nearly as perfect as is scientifically possible. Now, we're down in Nashville this weekend, hoping for good weather to catch the first total solar eclipse of our lives. Back in Boston, you'll be able to see the eclipse, but it won't be total. As we were getting ready for the trip, we wondered whether Bostonians had ever been treated to a total eclipse, and if so, when the first one was. I'm sure there were earlier eclipses, but the documentation isn't great before the Revolutionary War. First one I could find a record of that was visible from Massachusetts was on November 14, 1659. Now, just as a reminder, a solar eclipse occurs when the moon passes between the sun and the earth, casting its shadow on the earth and causing darkness during daytime. An eclipse can be annular, where the moon appears to be smaller than the sun and causes a ring of fire effect. Or it can be total, where the moon appears to be the same size as the sun and completely obscures it. Because of the relative orbits of the earth and the moon, the path of totality during an eclipse tends to be just a few miles wide, and hundreds or thousands of miles long. The 1659 eclipse was partial, meaning that the sun was not entirely obscured. The records of the town of Salem say, An eclipse of the sun began presently after 7 o'clock in the morning, continued till half-past 9. There were a couple of important eclipses during the American Revolution. During an eclipse on June 24, 1778, the path of totality stretched from Mexico across the American Southeast, and even into Northern Africa. Here in Boston, we were outside the totality, but still treated to a partial eclipse. In an 1806 book on eclipses, the author uses a scale of digits to measure partial eclipses, with each digit being equal to one-twelfth the diameter of the sun. He says, In the year 1778, June 24th, there was a great eclipse of the sun, As seen from Boston, it was about 11 digits, the north side of the sun being visible in the middle of the eclipse. That's over 90% obscured, which must be a very dramatic sight. The only solar eclipse I can remember happened in the 90s, and I don't think the sun was over half obscured from where I was at the time. The path of totality in 1778 passed right over Virginia, but those of us who are on Team Adams will be satisfied that Jefferson did not have the pleasure of observing it. He wrote in a letter to a friend, We were much disappointed in Virginia generally on the day of the great eclipse, which proved to be cloudy, 
In Williamsburg, where it was total, I understand only the beginning was seen. At this place, eleven digits only were supposed to be covered, as it was not seen at all till the moon had advanced nearly one-third over the sun's disk. Afterwards, it was seen at intervals through the hole. The egress particularly was visible. It proved, however, of little use to me for want of a timepiece that could be depended on. Things will get a little bit more interesting just two years later. The eclipse of October 27, 1780 was expected to be about ten digits, or 80% obscured when viewed from Boston. However, that time a party from Harvard set out to do exactly what we're doing this week. They would travel from Boston to chase the path of totality. For them, that meant going north. Totality was expected to be visible from the Penobscot Bay along the coast of Maine. Unfortunately, we were still in the middle of our war for independence at that time. And even more unfortunately, the Penobscot Bay was being held by a strong British garrison. Just a year before, the Massachusetts Navy and militia had taken a large party to Maine and laid siege to Fort George in an attempt to dislodge the British forces there. If you listen to episode 25 about the court-martial of Paul Revere, you know that the siege ended in disaster. Every American ship was sunk or burned, and the militia was scattered into the forest and forced to walk back to Boston overland. Needless to say, the British were not dislodged. Now, a professor of mathematics named Samuel Williams convinced John Hancock to write a letter to the British commander of that same fort, Colonel Campbell, asking for safe passage for Williams and his party to observe the eclipse from that area. Surprisingly, Campbell agreed, though he placed strict limits on where the party would be allowed to land, as he didn't entirely trust any ships from Massachusetts after the hijinks the preed summer. Williams was also able to convince the Massachusetts Board of War to fit out the state galley with proper stores and accommodation for the conveyance of the Reverend Samuel Williams, Holician Professor of Mathematics and Natural Philosophy at the University of Cambridge, and such attendance as he may think proper to take with him, to make the aforesaid observation on the central and total eclipse of the sun. Upon arriving in Maine, Colonel Campbell refused to allow the party to set foot on the mainland, instead forcing them to land on a large island in Penobscot Bay. Though disappointed that he wouldn't have freedom of movement, Williams calculated that the island was within his desired area. Unfortunately, the maps he had been given to work with contained a slight inaccuracy, and he was actually just a few miles outside the path of totality. The longitude of the place of our observation agrees very well with what we had supposed in our calculations, but the latitude is near half a degree less than what the maps of this part of the country had led us to expect. On this account, our situation, instead of falling within the limits of total darkness, proved to be very near the southern extremity. Despite this setback, he made detailed scientific observations of the eclipse that would be useful for geographers and to improve ocean navigation. He also took a moment to step back and reflect on the magnificence of the event. From the beginning of the eclipse unto the time of the greatest obscuration, the color and appearance of the sky was gradually changing from an azure blue to a more dark and dusky color, until it bore the appearance and gloom of night. As the darkness increased, a chill and dampness was very sensibly felt. In one hour and nineteen minutes, when the light and heat of the sun were rapidly decreasing, there fell two-thirds as much dew as fell the night before or the night after the eclipse. To this we may add, 
so unusual a darkness, dampness, and chill in the midst of day seemed to spread a general amazement among all sorts of animals. Nor could we ourselves observe such unusual phenomena without some disagreeable feelings. Finally, in 1806, Boston was treated to a total solar eclipse, the first since Europeans settled on Massachusetts Bay. It came on June 16th, just after 11 a.m. NASA's eclipse calculator tells me that at my house, totality would have begun at 11.10 and lasted for 4 minutes and 42 seconds. An 1860 article in New York Times describes the event. Probably no eclipse that has happened since the settlement of the country caused as much excitement as this, and even now it is frequently alluded to by the fortunate spectators of the phenomenon. Indeed, it took place under a rare coincidence of favorable circumstances. The day was cloudless, the total obscuration occurred near noon, when the augmentation of the moon's diameter for its altitude is the greatest, and its apparent motion from the sun and longitude the slowest and also at a time when the sun was about at its greatest distance from the earth. The duration of the total eclipse was therefore very long, and nearly as long as it can be. Much as Williams had observed amazement among all sorts of animals during the 1780 eclipse, the cows on Boston Common seemed pretty amazed by the 1806 eclipse. Benjamin Bussey, founder of Harvard's Bussey Institute of Biology, recorded that the cows on the common, we are told, discovered sensible marks of agitation. Some of them left the ground and proceeded homeward, rest gathered around a person who was crossing the common at the time, and followed him with apparent anxiety, as if soliciting protection. A month before the eclipse, Andrew Newell had published a booklet called Darkness at Noon, telling people what to expect during the eclipse. In it, he recommended eclipse viewing methods that would make your mother cringe. These are definitely not NASA-recommended safe techniques. Newell first says that if you don't have access to a telescope, perhaps the best substitute is one of the dark glasses of a common quadrant. Editor's note. Don't use common sunglasses to view the eclipse. You will burn your retinas out. Only special solar glasses are safe. Newell then goes on to recommend using a mirror to reflect the sun into the dark glass of a common quadrant. Don't do this either. The author then goes on to offer perhaps the worst advice of all. Those who are not possessed of any of the contrivances above mentioned must have recourse to a piece of common window glass, smoked on both sides sufficiently to prevent any injury to the eye. The glass should be several inches square to be used with good advantage, and it will be much more convenient than a small piece. The smoke of a common lamp is probably the best for this purpose, as the glass will not be so liable to crack. If you want to observe Monday's eclipse a little more safely, Boston Public Library is making solar eclipse glasses available at most of their branches on a first-come, first-served basis. Many branches will also have educational programs about eclipses. Call your local branch to see what they have planned. You can also make a safe viewer if you're crafty. An improvised pinhole camera will work, and the lens of your binoculars can be used to project an image of the sun onto a piece of cardboard. If all else fails, stand under a tree and look down. Between the shadows of the leaves, tiny images of the partially eclipsed sun will be projected onto the ground. Our partial eclipse will begin at 1.28 on Monday, August 21st. 
The maximum extent of the eclipse will be reached at 2.46 p.m. And at its peak, the sun will be 63% obscured. That's just about eight digits, less than both the 1778 and 1780 partial eclipses we discussed, but still a dramatic sight to see. We wish you clear skies and safe retinas. To learn more about Boston's dark days and the history of eclipses in Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 145. We'll have plenty of links to historic maps, images, and all the primary sources you need to understand both stories. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and the satirical Wallingford map, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we'd love to play it on the show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We are in all your favorite podcasting apps, including Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and many more. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular app for listening to podcasts. If you subscribe on Apple, please consider rating and reviewing us. It helps us show up higher in the podcast rankings where people can find us more easily. If you write us a review, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. Or just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is truly the best way to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about Governor William Phipps' ill-fated expedition to Quebec. Quebec.